Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Fake news as it was originally conceived and, and, and described during the 2016 presidential campaign referred to made-up shit that was supposed to reflect poorly on one of the candidates. And we've now learned that in many cases that was sort of fed to us by um, state actors or people working in conjunction with state actors, Russia uh, and others, to affect our political process. Welcome to A Lot to Learn with Austin Rogers. For the guy who knows everything, he's still got a lot to learn. That was the voice of Adam Kushner, the Outlook editor at the Washington Post. As news itself has become news and fake news has become news, reportage is more important than ever, I believe. Therefore, it was quite important to sit down with Mr. Kushner and discuss how the sausage is made. In this episode, I do say the word sausage a lot because Adam goes deeply into the processes that ensure that high-caliber institutions like the Washington Post report in the fairest and most researched fashion and retract mistakes. Here's Adam Kushner. Outlook's editor, Washington Post. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night. I have no idea what time it is because it's a podcast and people listen to podcasts, I don't know, at spin class, apparently. No, probably not at spin class. Today, we're going to find out how the sausage is made, the journalism sausage, the media sausage, to be exact, with Adam Kushner, the editor of Outlook from the vaunted, the heralded Washington Post. Adam Welcome. Thanks for having me. This is going to be really fantastic because before we started talking, well, we're talking now, but before we started, started talking, we realized that, uh, or I realized that a lot of people out there don't know what goes into journalism. You see the sausage as the end product. We keep using the sausage, but we don't see all the work that goes in behind. Sausage is delicious. Sausage is delicious, but we don't see all the work that goes in behind. And, um... And a lot of times the sausage is unfairly maligned. So let's talk about journalism. You see in Outlook, in the Washington Post, you see an article and you read it. And it's got the byline of one reporter. But that's all that everyone looks at. They go, this reporter said this and it's not true. Or this reporter said this and I'm going to share it and everyone's going to celebrate it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not. It's a total team affair. Uh, how, do we, how does an article come to fruition? It's a great question with about a million different answers. Let's get seven then. Seven? All right, all right. That's, that's good to circumscribe the range of journalism, which is very, very broad. But um, at a place like The Post, where we have a very big newsroom and a lot of people covering a lot of different things, some stories come up bubbling from the sources individual beat reporters have. So we have reporters who are tasked to study all sorts of different things. They're reporting every day, talking to uh, our education reporters, speak to principals and ed policy experts and the people who run teachers' unions. And so they get story ideas. Their sources tell them, hey, we're hearing this thing is happening over and over in all the different constituencies we work with, and maybe there's a new trend you want, might want to write about of uh, you know teachers protesting not for pay but for the quality of education that their cities can afford, as what's happening in L.A. right now. So maybe a piece about that starts from a beat reporter and the people they know coming from the ground up to the editor, and a reporter might say, hey, this is what I'm hearing. I heard from four or five different people in different areas of my beat, and I think there's a story here. And um, that's that's one way uh, a piece comes down. Another way is editors 
uh, as an editor, editors are people too, <laughs> and uh, we have we have ideas, and um, we, you know, are trying to sometimes zoom out a little more broadly than the beat reporter is. You know, an editor might supervise all of the reporters in a beat, or an editor like me might supervise writing from across a big range of beats. And I read something in a novel last night that gave me an idea, and I might say to an editor on my team, as I did today, you know nobody really has hobbies anymore. Let's do a big cover story on the death of hobbies. Who can we get to write that? And why did everything turn into a side hustle? And um, so we are going to bring that idea that we had. We're going to find a writer, think about you know who's out there, who's covered work and employment and sort of use of time before, who's written a good book on this. Um, we'll, we'll locate a person, we'll hand them the idea, we'll offer them payment, um, or we might give it to somebody in the newsroom and say, um, you know, you're a, you ha- you're a writer with a lot of voice and a wide intellectual curiosity. Here's something that doesn't fit in your normal coverage, but would you be interested in writing it? So editors hand out ideas. They also hand out ideas in the beat, too, somebody covering Congress. An editor in charge of the Congress team might say, how is Nancy Pelosi going to handle the next threat of the government shutdown? Let's do a piece about that. Um, so I, I would say up from below and, and down from above are the, the two main kinds of story commissioning, and different publications have different cultures around this stuff. Um, a lot of places, especially in magazines, and I would say at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, I would say are very editor-driven cultures, right. where people tend to, there's a lot more handing down of ideas. And then there are places like the Post, I would say, on balance is a little bit more of a writer-driven culture. Um, and there are pros and cons to all the different sort of ways a newsroom works, and uh, so 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 that's that's how story begins, right? So, and even if it comes up from the groundswell, it still has to come up to the editor and get reassigned back down, maybe to the beat reporter who suggested it, or it might be to someone else who it's more appropriate to, or who has the workload to do it. Correct? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, this is a great idea you had. You know, I, I think the this other reporter has who who covers this other similar related field is going to have the better sources to help. What about managing ego when it comes to that? I mean, we we've already di- diverged from uh, diverged from the actual process of the m- news, but that just sparked our. Yeah, uh, uh, I would expect. Oh, I came up with a great idea. I sent it to the editor, and the editor goes, "No, um, Stephanie is going to cover this." Yeah. It happened. I mean, I, I would say it's not that frequent that editors sort of rip a story idea away from the person who came up with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unless it's sort of offered freely, oh, you should go get X person to write Y story. Right. I mean, usually usually a person who, a reporter who has a story idea will end up writing the story. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I can't speak to the whole range of journalism, and I have worked at places that are a little bit more competitive among the reporters than others, but um, folks are pretty professional. You know, they understand that uh, I'll write the story I'm best qualified to write, and somebody else will write the story that they are best qualified to write, and we're all on the same team. Yeah. Um, and then maybe you get the additional reporting provided by, and then sure. there you go. There's your, I mean, I interviewed a scientist <laughs> and, uh, he sort of touched on, uh, some of the ego when your papers are published and, uh, they'll just be like, okay, you know what? Uh, you're going to get the and at the bottom. So you're, you're still in it because it came from you, but we did all of it, but we're still, so there is, there is a camaraderie. You are all on the same team. You're all in the trenches together, the journalism trenches, the scientists are all in the science trenches. So if someone, you never scalp someone else's science, but if someone else's science inspired yours, you might give them a co-credit on the paper. So that's another feather they could put in their cap. Yeah, it is similar in some ways. In fact, I would say even more collegial in journalism where the um there's a there's a, a a good culture of collaboration in most newsrooms and uh, I would say that's a thing that has become truer in recent decades there was a long history in journalism of sort of the reporter as hero you know the sort of Sartre figure yes um, yeah who who I mean media is just populated by yeah, it right um, the model is dead uh, <laughs> in that way among others but um, 
I think in, in recent decades, and especially in the last decade or so, um, folks have become much more interested in pooling resources, and, and you see it a lot uh, at the Post for probably more than any other paper, I think, um, any other big papers anyway, where, you know, if we are covering, that's one of the things about covering government, is that it's such a hydra-headed organism, you know, where if somebody on the White House team, which is a very big team, wants to do a piece about the way, say, the Trump administration is is addressing or maybe ignoring advice from different parts of the executive branch. Well, whoever it is who covers the White House is not going to really know the people on the policy planning staff at the State Department or at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Because each of those have their own beats. Their own beats, their own reporters, their own sources. And multiple, multiple reporters in each of these little quadrants. Exactly. Yeah. We have three Defense Department reporters, three State Department reporters. You know, we have a giant team covering the White House. So a story like that Could might you say rope that team in. is huge? It's huge. It's, <laughs> it's like you wouldn't even believe. <laughs> um, so a, a piece like that would probably, there would, there would be maybe a lead writer or a couple of lead writers who might sit at the keyboard together and uh, they might take feeds from a dozen people. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say a, a thirteen or fifteen person endeavor is an everyday kind of story, but that but it happens all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, it doesn't necessarily. Well, you just the multi-headed hydra. It doesn't necessarily have to be the blockbuster story. It could be a almost routine story that just has so many moving parts that you need all of these chefs to get into that soup. I completely understand. And sometimes not even chefs. Sometimes just sort of counselors and advisors. Um, I sometimes go to the editor of another section or a beat reporter who studies a piece that um, is the subject of something I'm publishing in the Sunday issue. And I say, hey, I have this piece on whatever, spectrum auctions. You know, the government is, is selling spectrum to um, radio companies and, and the author sort of describes it in this way. D- does that sound right to you? And the person who covers it, who covers um, the uh, FCC, is going to know about that and that person's not going to get a credit in my story but they're a professional they're nice people and uh so that we help each other in that way all the time now as the editor and you said earlier you touch on so many such a broad amount of subjects which um, is unusual in a newsroom Right, because of your specific, because of outlook's breadth. Because of yeah, what my what my does, but 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 generally, news organizations tend to believe in specialization. Right, um, th- that where where does that where does that pull you uh, in your in your you said you uh, address other counselors and uh, address other colleagues, um, but where does that pull you and your expertise? Are you constantly reaching out and gleaning from others? Um, are you master of none? And yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, I feel I I love my job. I think I have the greatest job in journalism and the greatest job in Washington, where I get to learn about different things and think about different things every single day and talk to different people and become stimulated with new ideas that. It would never have occurred to me on a day-to-day basis. So I, I love my work, but there is a little bit of a feeling of being a mile wide and an inch deep, um, where I know just enough about lots of different things to sort of assess. You know, a lot of my a lot of my job as an editor is in what I would call assignment editing, um, which is uh, you know, a- editor. You think of what does an editor do? Um, it sounds like a person who sort of proofs the text that a reporter or a writer gives you. Right. Use, use the carrots and the little signs yeah, and yeah. the red lines. Right. The comma goes here. The yeah. period goes there. Yeah. Let's, let's start a new paragraph with this sentence. Um, editors certainly do that, but that's, I think maybe 3% of what they're ever thinking about. Right. Um, and, and really a good editor is, is thinking about structure, argument, logic, arc, and most importantly, especially for my job, conceptualization. What, what is the idea here? How is it new? How does it add value? You know, how does it show that the stakes of whatever it's talking about are high enough that we're doing a piece on this in the first place? Um, you know, when you do analysis journalism, 
journalism, which is a lot of even what daily reportage is now. Um, how do you know that you are correctly supporting your conclusion? How do you know that you have established the premise before you even begin making conclusions? How do you know that you're being fair in addressing any counterarguments or any things that might mitigate against your analysis? How do you know you're not confusing correlation and causation? Um, so, you know, you're really thinking about is this a good idea and does it hold together? Now, um, before Adam and I sat down, we just went over each other's backgrounds and got to know each other. We've got some mutual, uh, mutual people that we know in common, uh, actually very well, some mutual people we know very well in common. But one of the things that we both uh, red flagged, not red flagged, green flagged about one another was we both started with a little classical music background. And what you just sort of described was, you know, uh, when you got a piece in front of you and you've got an assignment to write a piece, you've got the structure, uh, you know, whatever, it's not Allegro, you know, uh, exposition, re- development, recapitulation, yeah, yeah. yeah, or a Rondo or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it, that just made me realize that I guess I never innately knew that. Uh, a newspaper article or a news article has like a structure a to form, it, yeah, definitely. right? Uh, what are some of those forms? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. There, so the classic, most everyday form is something that we uh, describe with our shorthand as the inverted pyramid, where sort of the biggest top line, most important information comes first. You know, the the thing that has the broadest impact. Yesterday, the Trump administration announced new sanctions on Iran. Boom. Biggest news. And then with each successive part, sentence in the piece, in each successive paragraph, you sort of narrow down what it is you're describing. And every consecutive detail is maybe less important than the previous one until you get to the end of the story and you're learning things that are sort of useful background information or whatever. And um, one reason news stories are written in this way is so that traditionally reporters would file and they might file too long. Then they might be out reporting something else or they might be home or the printer or the publisher might get an ad or the printer might find, um, that the page is going to be shorter than I thought it was. And then I had going to have to cut some material. So in the inverted pyramid format, you just cut straight from the bottom and we got to remove the bottom 300 words and you just cut them out. Um, that's, a little less common now because now we do digital design and we sort of know um, what length we're writing to. And so there's a little bit more craft that goes into modern reportage than that. But it's still the most basic structure with one caveat, which is that, um, you know, most important information at the top, least important information at the bottom, except we have something very important, probably the most important part of the story that's in almost every news story you'll see is called the nut graph, N-U-T-G-R-A-F. And that's the section near the top, maybe right after you hear what the news is, where you're learning, why is this important? What does this mean? What's the context of this news? The Trump administration announces new sanctions on Iran, and then... You know when when do they go in effect, and what are they what what are they going to affect? And then the nut graph there in the second or third paragraph is this is an answer to what the administration sees as Iran's failure to comply with a, this, the disarmament agreement, or this is its answer to Congress refusing to create a new statute imposing. Um, sanctions. So you, you sort of give the context of this episode in history. And that is still completely objective. I mean, no, is it? The, what is objective? I, mean, I, I don't. Okay. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, yeah, there's there's a little bit of if P then Q to that, but the, there's it's not it's not completely objective. Right, it's not a statement of fact so much as an analysis, and that analysis draws on facts, things that have happened, history. You know, it's the reporter's synthesis of what we know, and you know, you would not call that quote-unquote, objective in a, in a classical sense. Right. But it's still, there's, you know, it's still, there's no, that, that's like a very, 
um, low bar of analysis. You know, that's not, I have a novel argument I'm going to make to you. Right. That's just like, don't forget. These are the things that happened before. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Cause the way, the way that sort of pops out there and now that I'm rereading articles in, in, in my head, you hear it and you're like, is that the agenda of the writer? But no, you're just it, you're setting context to better enhance the story experience for the reader mm-hmm. because now they can circle back to the top right. 4% of the lines and be like, oh, oh, I get it. So that's why they're doing it. Okay, now let's delve in deeper. And that comes near the top. I think it's worth having a, a discussion about objectivity. And just before we want to get there, I want to mention a couple other types of journalism formats. Oh, yeah, yeah, please, formats. please, yeah. Because so, so... I mean, Again, we don't think of this as being formatted. We think, oh, the news just happens. Yeah, I know. It, it definitely is. You have to have a, a process. And, and as a profession, it really is um, sort of riven in the best way with norms and and processes and traditions. I mean, there's a lot that a reporter thinks about before they start committing news to paper. You know, do I have this information double sourced? Is it reliable? Um, am I describing things that were told to me on background correctly? Um, can I, how do I use figures from this report? You know, how do I use data responsibly? There, there are all these sort of traditions and, and habits that you learn as a journalist that come to bear with every story you write, including the inverted pyramid. And then also some of the other formats, which are, um, you know, I would very loosely call them, uh, let's say, a trend piece. Um, you know, something is changing and you want to depict the change, which might be hard to show purely in data. Maybe it's a sort of series of anecdotes, um, or maybe it's anecdotes combined with data. And so sometimes you read a story that puts you immediately at the beginning, you know, in, in an event, in a scene. Right, um, and you get that in the longer form. The the Sunday magazines, it's like, you know, Dave Thomas was sitting on his porch one day and the ice cream truck drove by. And exactly, he, And exactly. he thought to himself, quote, blah, 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 blah. And then now we're in it. The ice cream truck drove by. What's that have to do with Dave Thomas? And then the nut graph. And then, you know, ah, there we go. It's back in again. It's back. It comes right. back. So, so, you know, this is, this is something that used to be thought of as sort of like the long form, the Sunday. Yeah. Now this is actually something you see on a daily basis in the paper. Well, it's compelling. Um, it's, to, it's, it's a, got a narrative. It's a great way into a story. Yeah. People are much more interested in once upon a time. Yeah. Than a brick through the window. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a, it's a great way to describe a trend or a series of things happening that are not breaking news. Here's some shit you didn't know. Um, so you, so you start in the scene, you know, Dave is sitting on his porch and the ice cream truck drove by and, um, it, it broke down and sat outside of his uh, house for three weeks and somebody came and the city put a boot on it. And the nut graph is, Gas prices are so expensive that they're putting small business owners out of business. <laughs> right, 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 and right. Here's right. how it's affecting, you know, uh, whatever food trucks, the food truck business, or right. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and 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 that that also kicks the reader in because it gives you know empathy and it gives them an innate context because they can relate to this anecdote. But if it was just an anecdote, it's nothing. And now, now we hit in the news and we back it up and we have multiple sources and we have multiple anecdotes that are akin to that one. Exactly. And a story like that might look at historical gas price changes over time. Yep. You might quote an economist talking about the amount of GDP that, you know, uh, falls for every 10 cents, the gas prices rise per gallon, you know, it would wrap in a bunch of different types of reporting to a story like that. The Eau Claire, Wisconsin boot manufactory has, uh, has upped its orders by 10,000. So they're, they, they got to sell more boots to municipalities. So where are all the boots going? They're going on those trucks. You there know? you go. You're ready for the assignment. Uh, 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 um, uh, what, what's, what's one more, uh, give us one more form. Um, those are the two biggest ones. They're also sort of analytical pieces that are are purely argumentative, which I don't say in the opinion sense. It's more, um, it's sort of a form of the trend piece, but it's it doesn't necessarily have to have scenes. Um, I have a piece uh, that I'm working on right now that's about how fake news is as much a threat to, or, or, or I don't know, as much, but it is it is 
a threat to corporations in addition in addition to just our sort of our politics and how um, purveyors of, of disinformation target corporations either because they're trolls or because they're profiteers at rival companies or um, for whatever reason and that's a piece where you just sort of lay out the argument and um, so it's it's still kind of in the second class of journalism, and th- and then there are some places out there. I would not say the Washington Post is a big purveyor of this, but there are some places out there that sort of don't believe in the nut graph, and they really believe in a more immersive type of storytelling. California Sunday Magazine is a good example of this, where they're almost uh, uh, religiously, militantly against, you know, the omniscient voice of the reporter swooping in to tell you this is why this matters and this is what this means. They think that's bullshit, and so better for you. A, a much better way to learn about different kinds of lives and different kinds of events is to just put you in the middle of them. Right. So we're going to tell you a 15,000-word story about this immigrant high schooler living in Oakland and sort of what his daily travails are. And um, there's something to be said for that kind of journalism, too. And you draw from that what you will. Right, exactly. But that's, get, that's putting a lot on the reader's plate, and it's, uh, it's giving the reader a lot of... Uh, and there are obviously authorial choices that go into it. Yeah. I mean, it's still a highly crafted story. The, uh, the writer decides what to show and what to tell um but you know so so the 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 choices and the sort of the analysis is sort of being shown more than being told hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place with linkedin you can hire professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com people today hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Do you want to get into the uh, the big FN word, the big fake news word? Do we want to get into that? Sure. How because I'm I'm having a problem even defining what the fake news is anymore. Because the definition has, has changed. Yeah. Thanks, thanks to our president. I yeah. Uh, I'm not falling in line with his definition of fake news, but uh, there's now there's now newsy newsiness, which is sort of in the middle now, where 94% of it sounds like, okay, I think this is legit, and then there's a 6% of it where I'm like, now I'm not sure. How do we... How do we vet that 6%? How do we trust that our reporters are doing their due diligence? Uh, It's a great question, a really difficult question. Uh, Let's With a lot of different answers coming from different directions. So let me let me start by saying that um you know fake news as it was originally conceived and 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 described during the 2016 presidential campaign referred to made up shit that was supposed to reflect poorly on one of the candidates. And we've now learned that in many cases that was sort of fed to us by um, state actors or people working in conjunction with state actors, Russia uh, and others, to affect our political process. Then, obviously, the president uses it to describe anything he doesn't like. Yes. Uh, And and, uh, there was an amazing illustration of this um, a few days ago where... um, some some reporter asked him if uh, Pompeo, the Secretary of State, would be leaving his job, and he said, "That's fake news." And the reporter said, "No, no, no! I've just spoken minutes ago to somebody who was talking with him about this, and he said, well, um, Mike loves his job, and I'm sure he wouldn't leave.' So immediately, the story, the piece of reporters, transformed to fake news into just something that was annoying, <laughs> um, which which I I do think is sort of what he that's that's the way he thinks of fake news. Um, 
they're they're as a news consumer yeah how um, can we how can we read between the lines how do we know we're being fed you know uh grade a beef and not the uh not the the bad sausage. <laughs> well, it's 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 tough, but you know we're living in this era where people have completely lost faith in institutions, from religion to Congress to the media to everything. But um, let me put a plug in here for institutions for a second. If you see something from the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or even your local daily metro uh, paper, the Atlanta Journal of Constitution or the San Francisco Chronicle, you can believe that that's legit because I was sort of I was alluding earlier to all the processes and norms that journalists have in place to make sure their work is um, meets high standards, is ethical, you know, is, that's probably the most important thing. Uh, you, you don't see this in any of the coverage, but we all have hard and fast rules, the violation of which results in your firing, that prevent us from taking money from a source, even taking a meal from a source. And, you know, there are a million little standards like that that suffuse the daily work of journalism and make sure that it's not necessarily that... Um, Everything in every major newspaper or magazine is unimpeachably correct and no mistakes are ever made because we do make mistakes and we have a corrections page every day um, and we try to hold ourselves accountable to that and reporters are flawed and also sources are flawed and sometimes they feed us bad information and, and part of our training is to vet that and, and get two sources or to get expertise weighing in on what you get from a source to prevent against it. But still, mistakes happen, uh, wrong information reported bad analysis is given and um but it's it's given then in good faith you know with a process in place to prevent that from happening and like you said to immediately make a culp of it when the second the the i'm i'm in institutional kind of i think institutional continuity and and those things that we rely on are really important and that's why when someone you know goes like oh my god they messed up that article i'm like yeah they messed it up you know how they know they messed it up they're the ones they who said, said they right. messed it up and so it happens every day i get a call from not every day but we have you know it happens at least uh, once a week where somebody says about one of one of the stories in my section hey uh you mentioned seven planes in the hangar and there were nine and i don't say fuck you you're insulting my journalistic <laughs> professionalism i say like oh our bad like let's correct it right now right and um, it's and it's down to that level of uh mundaneness too yeah, sure readers yeah. readers pay attention to all kinds of different things and especially in washington where we have readers that have high levels of expertise about the things they're here to work on yeah um there's a lot of good policing and it's it's great that that or that our readers and, and other people hold us accountable there's a flip side of this of course which is that people complain like the president sometimes does when we publish things they don't like and they say that's wrong and it's up to us to weigh, well, you know, they're not citing a particular fact that's wrong because we would obviously correct that immediately. They think our analysis is wrong and they're citing maybe countervailing evidence and we have to say, oh, is you know, is the evidence they cite saying the report we gave is bullshit? Is is that methodologically sound? The poll they're pointing to was that commissioned by an organization that was paid for by an advocacy group, or is the one we cited paid for by an advocacy group? We, we wouldn't do that because that's one of the things we have norms against. But yeah. um, so we get into weighing uh, when are the disagreements when are their stories legitimate and when are they not? And we also do editors' notes that kind of describe some of these disputes from time to time. Um, well, in terms of, I, wait, what do you mean editors' notes that describe that? That is, uh, and it, is that an internal safety valve? So you have like you know, it's like when a correction doesn't suffice. You have, a, but you have a running log of. Tick, 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 tick. These were some of the things brought up. And it, I, it's sort of like your, it's not your argument, but it's sort of like, I, yes, when this comes up, you're like, ah, yes, we confronted that. We know about it. We took a record of it. Yeah, and I would say it's something we do in particular when we lose faith in a story. It's not just when somebody complains and we take note of it, which we, we always take note, um, but it's when maybe the person complaining is right. So an example I saw of this recently was uh, there's a, a, an author of a new book out that says uh, marijuana is more dangerous than we have come to believe. And I, I think he, he cites a lot of science, and there is some science behind this, and then I think he um, 
there were some instances in which he used some of that science sloppily in an excerpt of the book he did for a, a magazine that I don't care to name because it, do, it doesn't matter for the, yeah, point yeah. Of the argument. But um, so he published this piece that had a, a sort of some flaws in the argument. He was supporting his point about Pot's dangers with studies that didn't necessarily show what he was saying they showed. So the scientists wrote in and they say, this is really fucked up. Like you're announcing these conclusions that we have not attained. Right. And so the publication went and looked at their findings, asked the author, well, how do you respond to this? Like, can you knock down their complaints? And I, I, th- I think he actually tried and they were not satisfied with his answer to the scientists. So they put an editor's note ultimately on the story that said, it's been brought to our attention that the original analysis in this story was flawed for X, Y, Z reasons. Right. Um, you know, they put it at the top of the story and that that's another really great and, and much more difficult form of accountability than saying there were nine planes instead of seven. Um, yeah, because because you're admitting, uh, I mean, you have to participate in in the analysis yourself. Yeah. Um, so that's hard. But well, well, no, but it's it's admirable because you're 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 admitting uh, back to the institution word. You're admitting an instance of institutional uh, not malpractice because never never nothing's ever done in uh, in ill faith error. Uh, yeah, yeah, but. That's hard to say we were wrong. And I think that's why these institutions work because you do that hardest of all hard things, which is to step back and say we were wrong or we were misinformed and that is our fault. Not we were misinformed by uh, maybe it was like uh, an ill, uh, an actor in ill faith who was misinforming you, but for then you to say, not just brush it under the covers, you actually go, no, we were wrong and here's why. Mm -hmm. I, I, think that is institutional integrity. Absolutely. I, 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 that's something we really believe in as a core part of our philosophy. Now, if you're a reader out there, um, you can trust that the, the big name places are doing that and believe in that and have people work at them that do, that do this. Then there are some cases that are obviously bullshit. Um, sites you've never heard of before making claims that shock the hell out of you because you would never have thought it were possible that, um, you know, a UFO were docked at the South Street Seaport in New York. Um, <laughs> and so some of that is, is transparent. And, um, and then there are some cases in the middle where you have to wonder, is this publication legit? And I, I think, um, you know, maybe a good barometer for judging a publication. If you look at it and they practice accountability journalism, they hold the institutions that they cover to account. So a lot of, a lot of cities have sort of local style and lifestyle magazines. You know, I'm from New Orleans. There's a magazine, St. Charles magazine, um, that covers sort of society there. And, uh, it's nice. They're nice pictures, events, you know, profiles. Um, what there's a, there's a, great and important role for what they do in communities. Um, but they're partly invested in the project of painting their community as a great one. Right. And they're not really interested in saying, well, in this part of old line, New Orleans, there was a lot of racism in, you know, real estate and there were covenants and red lines. And so they, they don't, they don't do pieces like that. They're not interested in it. And that's of course their prerogative. But if you see a place like that, make a really surprising claim, you got to wonder if they, that's the kind of place that has the norms that we come up with at places like the Washington post. Um, now, a lot of this stuff is showing up on social media, and we can do chapter and verse on how fucked up social media is, how terrible it's been for journalism, how it's ruined our business model, how um, it's impossible to know what to trust, how it promotes polarization and bubbles and all of this. But um, in a slightly exculpatory category, I will say that Google and Facebook um, have done a, 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 an important, if not yet perfect job in recent years of saying, we have a trust problem. We need to know, we need to tell our algorithms to know what to trust. We need to do a better job of teaching them. It's okay to show the Washington Post to everybody on their news feeds, and maybe it's not okay to show, you know, Sputnik or some, or RT, you know, some basically state media organ of Moscow that's promoting bullshit. And so, um, 
they're doing that work, trying to teach the algorithms that the, the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and, and all of the Metro Dailies that you know are, are good and reasonable and and maybe a place like. Um, uh, well, some of the opinion magazines or some of the bullshit places are not. And they also have come to us and they said, one way you guys can help with this, this is, this is an idea that they had. They came to us as part of what, what we're calling the reputation project. They said, you guys can be a little more transparent and you can put on your stories what's straight news reporting, what's analysis, what's uh, perspective, what's straight up opinion. And, um, and so that's, that's something we did at the Washington Post. We now label all of our stories that because, um, in print, it's easier to tell stuff that shows up in my Sunday outlook section is it's a little bit more clearly analysis. We have more sort of photography and design. It's reads a little bit more like a magazine online. Nobody knows what came from which section. So that's helpful. They also told us, um, you should build out author pages for everybody you have on staff so that a reader reader can say, why is this person qualified to tell me what the Trump administration is doing about Iran sanctions? You can click on their byline. It goes to their author page. It says, this person got a degree uh, from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. They reported on the Iraq war. They uh, covered the Treasury Department for four years, and now they're a White House reporter. It's like, okay, that that person definitely is qualified to talk to me about Iran sanctions. And that, that helps sort of qualify us and show that we have a, a, a reputation for telling um, the, you know, good news and good faith. Um, I don't know. Is that a good primer on fake news for now? No, that is, that's a, that's a good one. And again, um, I, we keep circling back to it, but you are doing this. The Washington Post as an institution is doing this in the efforts to, because back in the day, uh, you're doing it to dispel all of these controversies on your own accord, maybe with a little bit of prompting, but you're still being as transparent as possible. Because back in the day, it was like Dateline Moscow, and the anonymous reporter said whatever it was, and it was taken as fact. Now, since we're all a little bit more skeptical, and we still do that for you know news events that happen in Moscow, yeah, yeah. But, but for other for other kinds of stories, we're trying to say, you know, here's here's where this fits into the constellation of storytelling. Yeah, and. He- Here's and here's who did it, and here's why. Right. Here's why they are the relevant person That's to right. do it. This person speaks Russian. Yep. Yeah. Um, it, it, because uh, your um, are now we have now more skepticism than ever, which is ironic that we have more skepticism than ever. We're like, I don't know what to believe. Yet we share more stuff that we innately should not believe in. I. It's this. It, it's this. Uh, what's confirmation it? bias? I get. Is it confirmation bias? I, I mean, it must be. Well, the, the sharing of bullshit is. I don't. I don't know how to describe that. I mean, uh, it's sad. I, I, I think. I mean, I think there are low information people. I think probably most Americans are not ve- super attentive to. Um, you know, the intricacies of news events in the federal government, in their local governments. That's fine. People are leading their lives. They sh- you know, news is not any, in most people's primary concern. They're paying their mortgage and sending their kids to college and whatever. Um, so, I, I mean, I think there is room in there for some duplicity. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, the best we can do to fight it is just tell the truth. <laughs> I wanted to go into this so like uh, I'm going to I'm going to be uplifted and well and you're and you're like well there's a lot of work there's a there's a lot of work to do uh but the systems are the systems are in place um what is to cap this off cuz I know you're on a schedule um what is in this landscape the future of our relationship with the news because you and I, I think we're pretty much on the same page and you didn't say it outright, but you did paint the, uh, the sort of two and a half, three century American citizenry, uh, the, the citizenry and the journalist are one and the same. And, and, uh, and informed citizenry is a, integral to the society. And, you know, we've got the Zenger trial back in the day that made made sure that, you know, that's not defamation. He actually was a terrible governor. Um, what's the future of our interaction with the news? And are we sort of on divergent paths where the journalist is no longer looked upon as the citizen? And I don't agree with that. I certainly hope not. I mean, 
uh, I would say, a kind of belief in the civic purpose of inform- uh, of information is the prime mover behind all of my all of my colleagues got into journalism. You know, I, I personally and everybody I can think of at the Washington Post is a journalist because they think it's important for people to know what's going on. It's important for people to know the truth. It's important for the truth to hold institutions to account like the government or big businesses or international organizations or, um, you know, anybody who's doing something wrong, you tell the truth about them. And that's, that's how we keep our country and our society healthy, um, is to practice accountability. And, and journalism is the main way for that. And I hope people don't think that journalists are not like them. But um, I, I do think that, um, you know, technology is changing the way people consume journalism. And it's very hard to know what that's going to look like in 10 years. I I feel better qualified to predict for you what might happen to the sort of business of making journalism than to know what's going to happen to the way people receive it and consume it. Uh, 10 years ago, I would never, or 15 years ago, I I would never have predicted, you know, that people spend the majority, more time on their phones than they do at their desks, at their computers, consuming information, um, or what the implications of that would be for the way they understand information and, and visuals and, um, so it's it's sort of hard to know as tech changes what's what's going to happen. Um, I will say that places like the Washington Post face a really steep climb in terms of making sure they can keep doing what they're doing. Um, we personally, we at the Post are very lucky to be owned by a super rich person for whom the business concerns are not paramount. Um, and, and Bezos as an owner um, has has been sort of the perfect combination of the most rich and the least involved, um, <laughs> which is really the sweet spot you want to yeah. use as a journalist. Yeah. And I, I've worked for some other places that were owned by very rich people who like had story ideas, and that was like a big problem. Um, you have to run interference on that, and you have to tell them, well, this isn't okay, or this is only okay if we do anyway, um, that's great that we're, we we don't have to worry about losing money. But for most other major journal institutions, um, the the trend is bad. Those places subsisted on advertising revenue um, mostly, and a little bit on subscription payments, people subscribing and buying the paper, but mostly advertising. And that whole economy is just gone. I mean, there's there's I don't. I don't want to. You know. I. Th- I don't want to be specific with numbers because I don't know the exact figures. But I, I would say, places like ours make somewhere in the ballpark of a third from print media ads, printed ads, than we did twenty years ago. Um, and it has not happened that for every dollar we lose in print advertisements, we're gaining a dollar in web advertisements that go along with our story. Not even not even an order of magnitude uh, is that happening. So we have to figure out other ways to make money. And some places are doing it by hosting events or by packaging their journalism in books or making deals with TV shows or whatever. And some of it is working and a lot of it is not. And the problem is that journalism is a super capital-intensive product because you got to hire people with prof- with college degrees at least, if not more, um, who have really high-level communication skills and could make more doing other things. And then you have to pay the benefits, and you have to um, pay their expenses, which are ample. We have reporters. We send them to Moscow. We got to fly them. We got to put them up. We got to send their kids to school. We got to make sure that they're paying their way for every meeting with a source, that they're not accepting money for drinks, for food. Um, And sources like to meet for drinks and food. And so those are big expenses we have. We send reporters to war zones. We got to make sure they have um, gear, that they have bodyguards, that they have security, that they have somebody to where they're getting food from safe places is that they have war insurance, which is a thing we pay premiums for. Um, and so our costs are incredible. It is very expensive to run an organization like this. And so we have to make money and um, it's getting harder to do that. Because if you don't, there's no one in those war zones or even that local beat to talk to the alder woman or whatever uh, to 
shed light on the truth. You just wrote the nut graph of this story. Those <laughs> those are the stakes. No, really. And you, yeah. look, you look around the country and you see where there were once two Metro dailies, there are none. And where you once had three reporters covering City Hall um, from... Three reporters each from two different newspapers. You now have one person who's basically only has the time to write off press releases, not to sit down and scrutinize the city budget and say, this line item wasn't here last year to pay this trash company that's owned by the brother-in-law of the mayor. And And then power runs rampant. Power runs rampant. You have to have people to hold power to account. And so you see where in places where news organizations are losing money, suddenly they don't have a Moscow bureau or suddenly they don't have a city hall bureau and they only can practice the kinds of journalism that advertisers like to advertise against lifestyle stuff, sports coverage, that stuff is useful and important to do also, but uh, it can't be the whole game. So I know you've got a tight schedule, so let's wrap it up on something. Let's, let's go, let's try, let's try to go upbeat. I would, I would rather have something as dire a warning of truth dying in the darkness from Adam than, you know, some fluff piece in the lifestyle section. Not that there's anything wrong with the fluff piece in the lifestyle section, but this is really important stuff. But I often end most programs with asking people, uh, because we often do programs with uh, nonprofits or people with small businesses or people in emerging economies, and um, I often asked, and I'm going to ask you, how can we help? What can we do to help our fellow citizen who happens to be a journalist and help these institutions that we should hold so dear to us because they are the only ones turning on the flashlight in the dark room sometimes. What can we do to help other than uh, starting a multi-billion dollar bookseller in our, our, uh, in our garage and just <laughs> hoping it takes off? Um, you know... You, now, by the way, that does help. It, that really has helped us a lot. Um, it's a cliche, you've heard it before, but subscribe to your local newspaper or magazine, pay for journalism, because it's a product that's important to you personally, and also important to the civic health of our country. And I mean, I couldn't even begin to count the hundreds of thousands of times where um, journalism I've seen or helped produce in my career has resulted in a change. You know, the business is no longer, the business that you did that story about is no longer going to force their employees to work 15 hours without a break. Or um, the story on the screwed up FDA drug approval process that's influenced by pharmaceutical companies is being read aloud on the Senate floor by the chairman of the committee that oversees the FDA, or even um, the cover story you ran last week about the man who tried to go a year without producing any trash, uh, affected readers who wrote letters to the editor that say, I'm inspired and I want to try to do that too. And, um, you know, this stuff really makes an impact on people's lives, learning new information, better ways to live and holding power to account. And uh, it's it's worth having around. So keep us at it. I, I couldn't agree more. So, you know, subscribe to your local. And if you're in Poland, subscribe to your local newspaper in Poland. I got to give a Poland shout out every well, episode now. Poland has some challenges to free <laughs> they, speech there. They, they do have some challenges right now. Uh, Adam Kushner, editor, Outlook, Washington Post. I know we started on a downer, but I think we learned a lot today. And I think we have a call to action, which is subscribe and read that news and find the institutions to have faith in. And they're, they're still out there. There are the metro sections of Atlanta and stuff like that that are still adhering to these hard and fast journalistic rules, and they're there for a purpose. Uh, so I just wanted to end on like an upper. <laughs> uh, and I think we did. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> This has been A Lot to Learn with Austin Rogers. A Lot to Learn with Austin Rogers is produced by myself, Austin Rogers, alongside Maria Elizabeth Gibson and Limitless Media. Please follow me on Twitter at Austin Tylero or Instagram at Augra27. Also, I have a Patreon if you're interested in donating. It's patreon.com slash Austin Rogers. If you have any comments or anything, please tweet me, Instagram me, do all those things and let me know what you'd like to hear what you want to switch up and what you want to change. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.